what the church needs most is godly men and women. It's true. And uh, we got to experience that this past weekend and the weekend before, equipping us, and we want to be there supporting you and your families and wherever you are in your walk with Christ in that. So just over a month ago, I went to a funeral at a Catholic church. And what kind of struck me is, and you'll see this picture here, is this, when we got in there, it was a beautiful place up on this hill. And uh, in the center of this was this massive crucifix. And as you see here on the side there, there's a crucifix. And I remember getting there, and we were there, and I'm a Protestant guy, and we don't have crucifixes in our sanctuary here. But when I got those, man, that's just massive. And I thought through that, thinking, you know, there's a difference between Protestants and Catholics in many ways, obviously. But one of them is even how we think of the cross. The crucifix shows this tortured body of Christ. And how many have been to a Catholic church where you've seen the crucifix? And they're, they're, you know, they have them in different places. And uh, you got this huge one there. And then you look at our side, we've got a picture of ours. Look at cross, cross, right next to each other. We didn't need to do that. But there is a big difference. Even theologically, I think, there's something important to be said here. It is important at times to think of the suffering of Christ. The tortured body, the, the beating. And we're going to go through a narrative today that talks about the suffering of Christ. He suffered for us. Absolutely. And I believe once in a while it would be important to maybe think about a crucifix. Think about His tortured body. That is very important. But, never stay there. We know that through His suffering brought to us the glory of Christ, right? The reason we don't have Christ on our cross is because, guess what? Get ready for the response. He's risen! He's risen indeed. So there's a difference there. We have been taking three weeks looking at the glory, the the royal passages in Psalms of the Messiah. There are about a dozen messianic passages in Psalms, and we've been looking at particular ones dealing with the royal aspect of this anointed Messiah, this son who would be this great king, this great priest. And they all have this kind of final victory feeling to it. Not just His resurrection, but His second coming. And the children of God look forward to that final victory. Tell you what, it's important to know that that cross is barren. Amen? He's no longer there. Yet many of the passages also talk about His suffering. About the Messiah. In fact, the New Testament uses the book of Psalms to verify the reality of Christ's fulfillment of all that was spoken about Him in the Old Testament. Many passages in the Old Testament. And it helps us, the book of Psalms helps us with the New Testament lens 
fixate our mind on the suffering that leads to the royalty of Christ. There's beauty in His suffering, which is hard to think through. This is found in the glory of Jesus who through His rejection, humiliation, suffering, and exaltation, He is no longer on the cross. He reigns over all. And what I find amazing about these suffering passages that we're going to deal with now, we're going to take three Sundays dealing with these, that we have many details of Jesus and His suffering and His death and the crucifixion that was invented hundreds of years later but are spoken about in the Psalms. Crucifixion wasn't even a part of the society then. But we get glimpses of Jesus that aren't even found in the Gospel. There's something beautiful about the Psalms. And one of these psalm passages is Psalm 22. Known as kind of the psalm of the suffering Messiah. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 plays a critical role in understanding the cross event. In the psalms, we have different types of psalms. We're going to deal with this next week talking about more the theology of suffering and the Messiah, and the book of Psalms. This psalm is a lament psalm. But in the context of the New Testament, we see clearly that it's not just a lament song for David. It's a psalm pointing to the crucifixion of Christ. In the early church, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 were foundational in the Old Testament to understand Jesus and His suffering and His fulfillment in the crucifixion. And just as we have learned in other passages that we've been looking at in Psalms the last three weeks, Jesus knew and lived out this passage at a deeper level than David wrote it. Or others wrote Psalms. and They saw it at a human level where Jesus and the New Testament saw it at a divine level. And Through the New Testament lens, we see Christ living these words out in His suffering. And today we're going to learn a very important biblical truth. So write this down. This is very important. Jesus was momentarily abandoned by God and chose not to be rescued so that believers would never be abandoned and in doing this, rescuing His people. Amen? I just got goosebumps. This is why Christ is so worthy to be praised. Some of you wonder, why do we worship Jesus? Why do we celebrate God and His goodness? This right here is another reason why. He chose to be abandoned. He chose not to be rescued so that you and I would never be abandoned. Amen? And that we would be rescued. Oh, He is so worthy to be praised. So as we go through this today, we will end up with this today celebrating the beauty of His suffering and singing songs. 
charismatic point. So let's pray before we get into Scripture. Father God, I ask that you help us. We're going to just cruise through this section, this narrative found in Matthew here in a moment. There's a lot of data. But I pray that we would be thinking, He did this for me. He did this for me. I'll never forget the first time I saw the movie The Passion of the Christ. I wept. He did this for me. Help us think of the suffering of Christ, but also celebrate the suffering of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a New Testament parallel that lines up with Psalm 22. In fact, in our Bibles, some of you, I heard you turning to Psalm 22. We're really not going to even turn to Psalm 22. I'm going to have most of it on the screen here for us. We're going to turn to Matthew 27. So if you could take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 uses Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Suffering Messiah, the most in all of the New Testament. And right behind that would be John 19. What we're going to do is we're going to look at eight different parallels between Psalm 22 and Matthew 27 and then also into John 19. We're going to look at these parallels. I'm going to put these parallels on the screen for you here. Eight of them. But before we get into that, I'm just going to read this whole section for us, this narrative, this passion, this suffering narrative. Matthew 27, starting with verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head, They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put down his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to Crucify him. As they're going out, they met a man from Serene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, Divided up his clothes by casting lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed written a charge, the charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. 
come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. He wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land, all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling out to Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran out and got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. What I want to do is I want to look at eight different aspects, eight different parallels from this passage and again into John towards the end here, looking at how they looked at Psalm 22 as this suffering aspect of the Messiah. First one, he was pierced. Matthew 27, 31. Twice we have this in this passage. They led him away and then they crucified him. They nailed him to the cross. He was pierced. Psalm 22, 16. They pierced my hands and feet. The pain of physical suffering and agony that Jesus was about to face to lead to the crucifixion, the nailing on the cross. So yeah, once in a while, think of that crucifix. Think of that picture of Him being nailed to the cross. On the way to this place to be executed, much suffering happens. Then, at Golgotha, nails were driven into His hands, driven into His feet to secure Him to the cross. There they pierced his body. In fact, Jesus in John, after the resurrection, John 20, Thomas, look, see, look at the piercings. It's amazing that when this was first written in Psalm 22, way before crucifixion was even invented, way before that type of capital punishment, the Holy Spirit knew this was about Christ. He was pierced. The next one that we see, another parallel, his garments were divided. Matthew 27, verse 35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This comes from Psalm 22, 18. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Here, David's writing and saying, guess what? Even before I'm dead, my enemies strip me and they take all my stuff and they're already dividing my clothes among them. All four Gospels talk about this aspect 
in the last days, in the last moments of Christ's life. But listen to John 19. John 19, starting with verse 23. They took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot, by rolling dice, who will get it. This happened that Scripture might be fulfilled that said, and then they quote, John quotes Psalm 22. Again, Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies. That Scripture, I love how John says, this all happened, that Scripture might be fulfilled. Legally, by Roman law, the possessions of a prisoner was to be given to those who were in charge of him, those who were beating him, those who were the soldiers around him. Jesus did not have much. And as we see in John, this garment, this last final piece, was one woven beautiful piece. Instead of cutting it up, they said, all right, let's not do that. Let's just see who gets it. They roll some dice. They cast lots. The third, mockery. Matthew 27, 39 and 41. In fact, as you remember the passage we just read, throughout this whole narrative, there's mockery all around. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and elders mocked him. Again, the parallel in Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. David's description is people who walk by and notice him. Their reaction is scorn. The reaction is mockery. And just as the psalmist wrote this out in Psalm 22, this fulfilled as Jesus gets ridicule all around Him from people. Or as Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men. And as I read through this Matthew passage, I realized the verb here implies, they didn't just go, ha ha, I'm mocking you. Oh, I'm going to give you ridicule. It's this constant duration. They continued to do it. It wasn't just one little mockery, oh, you're a bad guy, and they took off. Oh, you're really not the Christ, and they took off. It was a constant duration of mocking insults against Christ. Not just one, and they would walk away, but they would slowly walk away, check out the scene. Someone's being killed here. Oh, here's the guy that said he was going to be saved. Oh, they would sit there and stand there and mock him for a long period of time. Slowly passing by, checking out the scene. Maybe you've seen that on a highway. There's an accident on one side of the highway, right? And on the other side where everyone's going, they're slowing down. They're like, whoa, it's called rubbernecking. Whoa, check out that scene. Whoa, what happened? Ooh, there's an ambulance. 
I don't know the statistics, but many times you got a one side of the highway, an accident, and all the rubberneckers on this side, they're slowing down, they're looking this way, and another accident happens. Have you ever been to something like that, right? It's like, come on, people. But we have this curiosity, like, ooh, what's happening here? What's going on? Here they are standing, slowly walking by, this constant duration of shaking their heads. In fact, shaking their heads was a gesture of the time of mockery, showing contempt, worthlessness. Oh, laughing, laughing stock. Oh, they're nothing. Shake their heads at them. Uh-uh-uh. Kind of an attitude. This Jesus received. But what is amazing is this. Here is Jesus, the Son of God. The one who has come willing to sacrifice and save the people who are walking by, mocking them. Hurling insults. And he endures this knowing he's dying for them. The next one challenges for rescue. Matthew 27, 43. Trust in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. I mean, truly, if he's the son of God, then the father will come and be like, this can't happen to my son, so I'm going to come down and rescue him. They mock him. They have this challenge of like, oh. Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him this is a great parallel that we see in psalm 22 david as you read through the psalms some of these lamenting passages that we have in the book of psalms david wrestles at times as we do with sometimes the silence of god god i need some help where are you despite his cries god does not answer or deliver him. It seems like, God, you have ears that don't hear. What's going on? Rescue me! So with all this taunting that occurs, now it builds up to the challenge of and for God to come and rescue. Because of God's apparent absence, this taunt would have been very tough. Here's Jesus. He's already been mocked at. He's been laughed at. People are saying all these things. Now they say the tough one. All right, you're supposed to be saved. Where's your father now? Where's your God now? The leaders are saying, in effect, he thinks he's the messianic David, Davidic leader. Let him prove it by getting off that cross. We've nailed him there. Now let's see if he is that divine royal warrior. Amazingly, as these people try to discredit Jesus, on the cross they're trying to discredit him saying, listen, if you're going to be rescued, then that will prove and we'll believe, but you're not being rescued. So in their way to discredit Jesus from being the Christ, they are actually proving he's the Christ because he's fulfilling Psalm 22. They are ignorant by bringing these 
words of mockery to say, come and rescue. But in reality, they're proving the prophecy, showing He is the Christ. Here's the question. Why would God not rescue His Son? Why would God not rescue His Son? Well, if He cares for sparrows, how much more would He care for His children? Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Talking of Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus did this willingly to rescue us according to the will of the Father. God's will was that this would happen. Why? The only way for Jesus to rescue His people was to, be re- to refuse to be rescued on that day. Jesus chose not to be rescued from real agony, from real suffering, from death, but chose to rescue His people from real suffering, real agony, and real spiritual death. Here it is. Jesus chose not to be rescued, but chose to rescue His people. What amazing love. What amazing love. That's why Christ is worthy to be praised. The next one, abandonment. Matthew 27, 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. In fact, I said we're not going to go to Psalm 22, but do that quickly. Take your Bibles and find Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. Now, I noticed how you quickly turn to Psalm 22 because you have ways of finding that. You know, Psalms in the middle of your Bibles, and you know that we have chapters, chapter 1, 2, 3, all the way up to 150. The way we find these passages are by the chapter numbers, correct? Now, in the times of Jesus... The times when this was written, they didn't have numbers there. In fact, we'll learn about this a little bit more next week about how there's five books within the book of Psalms, but they didn't have numbers. In fact, the way you understood what passage, what psalm to turn to, you would quote the first couple words. In speaking the first lines of Psalm 22 here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is very significant. Why was Jesus doing this? Part of it is because He's going, guess what? All this whole experience is based upon this psalm here. I'm quoting the first part so everyone around that hears it knows that guess what? This psalm, 
but they didn't have 22, but they knew it as my God, my God. Why we're saying this whole passage right now is being fulfilled right here. Let's go back to Matthew. Matthew 27. Now in our Bibles you wonder, well, okay, we got these weird words here, and uh, what, what does this mean? But then we got this editorial note in here, which means... Why do we have this? Well, for us, it's a little different, but for them back then at that time, it's very understandable. Do you know that Jesus was trilingual? He spoke three different languages. How many of you speak three languages? Anyone here? Where's Otieno? Okay, he's probably the only guy here that can do that, right? As a Jewish boy, he learned Hebrew, obviously. He could write Hebrew. He could read Hebrew. Hebrew was the language that they read. He's a Jewish boy. But at the time, he spoke the dialect of everyday speech, Aramaic. In fact, how many of you have seen the movie Passion of the Christ? A few of you. That's the language that is in that movie. Because Mel Gibson decided that's what they spoke, so that's what we're going to do. And then third, the written word of the time was Greek. In fact, that's why our New Testament is in Greek. We have this in Greek. So three languages are what Jesus knew. Matthew has the Aramaic words. Then the translation for us. What's interesting, the sound of the first two words spoken, some of the Gospels have Eli, some of them have Eloi, sound like the name Elijah in a different language. Thus, there's this misunderstanding of the bystanders going, wait, he's calling out to Elijah. Because the first two words sound much like Elijah to them. They think Jesus is crying out to Elijah. And Jesus, again, quoting Psalm 22, he's not just saying it as a question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's quoting it for not question, but identity. This psalm, is me this is about me jesus upon the cross of agony and suffering parallels his suffering through the understanding of psalm 22 which ultimately spoke of himself jesus physical trauma are minor compared to the suffering here it is the suffering of being forsaken by god the beating, the whipping, the mockery, the crown of thorns, the carrying of the cross, the being pierced. All of these things, I believe, are minor and compared to being forsaken by God when He takes the weight of sin for us. Jesus is abandoned by many of the passion narratives. Who abandons Jesus? The disciples do, right? Peter abandons him. His classic blunder. The high court abandons him. His own people abandon him. Soldiers. And then his father? I mean, I can understand Judas abandoning Jesus. That guy was not right. Peter deserting him. Why do I understand that? Aren't we all like Peter sometimes? I can understand, okay, humans doing that, people, but his own father, 
The ache of abandonment is one of the most severe pains someone can live through and feel. But why was he being abandoned? That's the question. Why? What compels a father to desert his son in the hour of his greatest need? This is important. Habakkuk 1.13 Speaking about God. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. God is completely holy. Remember, I spoke about this last week. Our notion of God, our primarily thoughts about God is that He's loving and peace. Absolutely, God is love. Absolutely. But in the Old Testament, their primary understanding of God, what two words? Remember what they are? Holy and victorious. God is holy. He cannot look at sin and evil. God is too holy to look upon sin. And when the sins and guilt of the world were upon Christ, Christ became sin for us. He took the weight of that. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. We'll deal more of this as we talk theologically about this aspect next week. But Christ became sin for us. And God cannot even look at sin. Christ who is made to be sin for us, experiences all the horror of separation from God. Sin separates us from God. And that justice had to be met. And the wrath of God poured upon the Son for our sake. And the ultimate sacrifice received the wrath of God and momentarily abandonment happened there. Why? Here it is. Divine abandonment bought for us divine justice. He died so we could no longer have separation between us and God. Jesus was momentarily abandoned by God so that His children would never, never, never be abandoned. This is why Christ is so worthy to be praised. Amen? Let's go to the next one. Thirst. Matthew 27, 48. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge filled with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Jumping to John 19. Remember, said John 19 also uses Psalm 22. Later, knowing that everything had been now finished, so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I thirst. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen: My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Once in a while, I feel like that when I'm speaking, so I once in a while give myself a good cup of joe, right? Mmm. Except my stuff is so thick, it adds stuff to it. 
even thirst is a form of suffering. And if not appeased, it turns into torture. A compassionate man then offers him some vinegar to help ease the pain a little bit, to give some comfort. So even in this part, there's a parallel to Psalm 22. Psalm 69, 21, they put gal in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And then here, the next one. Finished. This is important. Matthew 27, verse 50, the last to be read out of this narrative here. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, He gave up His Spirit. Or as John 19 30 says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then we go to Psalm 22, the last verse in this chapter. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. It's interesting, in this psalm, when you go back and read the whole thing of Psalm 22, it's all about lament. It's all about suffering. And with the New Testament, you go, oh, look at all this stuff happened to Jesus. Look at all this, what's going on here. But it doesn't end with lament and sorrow. The final verse ends not with suffering, but praising God for deliverance. The final phrase in this passage here of Psalm 22 is one word. And again, when you translate it many times in the English, because English is a poor language, the Brits should have fixed it so we could have a better language, but uh, I won't blame them. We have one word in the Hebrew, but for us, it can be translated either He has done it, or simply it is done, or it is finished. And Jesus says this, with one Greek word, tra- with one word translated in the Greek, it is finished. Just as the psalm David wrote about his suffering, his lamenting, and all that's going to happen to him, being pierced, being mocked, and all this pain, he ends declaring God's deliverance will happen. And Jesus did the same, proclaiming the work of salvation has now been completed. These dying words proclaim that our sin has been paid for. God's redemption has been carried out. But, the story's not done there. We don't end with the crucifix. Don't stay with the crucifix, people. Go to the cross, right? We don't end with the crucifix or suffering we end with victory so let's finish by going to acts chapter 2 acts chapter 2 also uses psalm 22 acts chapter 2 starting with verse 24 and here's the final one Yes, there's been mockery. Yes, there's been piercing. Yes, there's been agony and suffering and abandonment and a cry for rescue. The rescue has not happened, but we must end with this. Death cannot hold Him, alright? 
Acts 22, starting with verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you have not abandoned me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Psalm 16, verse 10 says this, Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will let your faithful one see decay. As Jesus used Psalm 22, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his final hours, I believe he meditated on that whole passage, thinking, look, this is being fulfilled. I will be abandoned so my people will not be abandoned. I won't be rescued so that they will be saved. As he's going through this passage, there's real agony, real suffering. Yet, he put his hope in God. It is finished. My body will not rot in the grave. He put his hope in God as prophesied in the book of Psalms. In the end, Jesus did trust in God's deliverance. He says, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. Christ knows that deliverance is coming. Restoration will happen. As we read in this Acts section here, Peter applies Psalm 16 to the resurrection. He will not rot in the grave. Death cannot keep a hold of him. Amen? Yes, there's the crucifix. Oh, but there's more than the crucifix. Take him off! It's a barren cross. He's alive! Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's the crucifix. But he does not stay there. Amen? His confidence is in the bodily resurrection. The termination that death brings is not the end. He's not afraid of the future because he knows that God will not forever abandon him. So I wrote this down. Death is not daunting to him who saw the light of eternity. Death is not daunting to him who saw, even in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this pain, oh, there's the light of eternity coming. Tell you what, that's something every Christian should stand on and know. Death is not daunting to those who know the beauty. His resurrection, His life brought me life and someday resurrection and there will be eternity in the presence of God Almighty. Death is not daunting. It is impossible for death to hold on to Christ as we see in the resurrection. Because He lives, we live. Because He has life after death, we will have life after death. He has conquered the grave. 
My flesh will not rot and decay in a sense of someday, yes, physically this will rot and decay. But spiritually, I will not rot and decay. I have everlasting life. My hope, my faith is in Christ. He will change me into a glorious way in heaven. We have hope for the resurrection because He has overcome the world and death. We see this, that death is not overcoming to those who have this hope for life and eternity found in 1 Corinthians 15. So in closing, here's the line again. Jesus was momentarily abandoned by God he took the weight of sin. He took the wrath of God. Yes, He did. He had to. He was that sacrifice. So in that, God momentarily abandoned Him. And He chose not to be rescued. Oh, He had the power. He could have just spoken. It was done. Sometimes it doesn't, doesn't make sense to my brain. Why didn't God just... He knew about sin and all this stuff. Why didn't He just snap His fingers and go, boom, okay, you're my children. Now you're salvation. Why did he choose to go through that suffering? Oh, the picture of his great love of you and I. Jesus was momentarily abandoned by God and chose not to be rescued so that believers would never be abandoned. And in doing this, rescuing his Ladies and gentlemen, God's love I will never comprehend. We have the greatest picture of it found in Jesus who suffered for us. The royal Messiah suffered and died that we would have life. How could you not worship Him? How could you not say, I surrender all Some of you might feel like God doesn't answer you. God has abandoned you. Look at my life. Look at my mess. Why is this happening? Why are the effects of sin all around me? Because sin is disastrous. It has no bounds. Like, oh, you're kind of a good guy, so I'll be nice. No, sin is horrible. We have the effects all around us. But know this. Hebrews chapter 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's with you. And He understands our suffering. Hebrews is big on that. Hebrews not only says He's greater than the high priest, He's greater the greatest sacrifice, He's greater than the temple, He's greater than all these things, He suffered and identifies with us. He's with you. He walks with you. Turn to Christ. Turn to We as Protestants, we do not have him on the cross. Because he's alive. I know Catholics believe that too. But we don't stay in the suffering. We celebrate. But it is good to be reminded of the sufferings of Christ. Today we're going to take communion. And guess what? Next week we're taking communion. And guess what? 
The week after, we're going to do it again and again to remember the sufferings of Christ. So those who are serving, if you could come up, the worship team's going to come up.